I think we're, we're, we're going to go and, and I am, this is Helen Kane, CEO of One MSL. Uh, absolutely delighted to welcome you to another webinar in our One MSL series. Um, the title of which you can see on your screen, Creating Greater Impact by Storifying Scientific Presentations. Now I have to confess, storifying is a word that Cohen has taught me. And um, I think I am going to learn so much more in the course of this webinar. And I am absolutely delighted to welcome him all the way from Singapore. Um, today uh, to share with us a topic that we know he is supremely passionate about and I think we're going to see this over the course of the next hour or so. So um, Cohen, I'm going to allow you to now take control of the slide deck and to introduce yourself but on behalf of 1MSL, uh, welcome to everyone who's on the line. We've got a fantastic number of people with us today. So there you go, that is testimony to the interest in this topic, Cohen. So over to you. Thank you, Helen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much to 1MSL team for inviting me to share on this topic that I'm very, very passionate about. So my name is Cohen Tan. I am from Singapore, but I have uh, trained and coached MSLs from multiple companies, as you can imagine, in the APEC region. So I've trained MSLs from Malaysia, Australia, in fact, even Thailand, Vietnam, Philippines, and I do a lot of coaching in China and Taiwan. So I am effectively a bilingual facilitator and coach. I am a bit of a polyglot. I love speaking and learning new languages. I speak French pretty, you know, um, serviceably, a little bit of Spanish as well, but um, I don't speak well enough to do training in those languages yet. So today I am very, very uh, passionate about sharing with you about uh, we can use storytelling to make our presentations and our communications more compelling when we are talking to KOL, uh, key stakeholders. So I think it's, it's very appropriate for us to start with a simple story, a very quick story. And this is a story that is very related to the, the medical field. So in the mid-19th century, there was an illness called childbed fever. There was baffling doctors all over Europe, and they were killing mothers at an alarming highly, uh, alarmingly high rates. So what happened? There was a doctor, a Hungarian doctor by the name of Ignaz Semmelweis, who was appointed as a first assistant to the professor at the obstetrics department at the Vienna General Hospital. And he made a very startling discovery. He realized that the doctor's clinic had an average mortality rate of almost 10%, and that is unacceptably high. So he, many people have been puzzled for a very long time until the breakthrough came on the 20th of March, 1847. Upon his return from a trip to Venice, he, he found out that his friend, forensic pathologist, Professor Jakub Koletschka died after his finger was accidentally cut during an autopsy. So during his autopsy findings, uh, he noticed that the same foreign substances have entered 
cholesterol bloodstream and the same as those of the mother's birth canals through the tendon's hands. So what happened here? When he probed further, he found that there was a common, it was very common for student doctors to perform autopsies in the morning and spend the rest of their days caring for the patient, for the mothers. And he hypothesized that the doctors must have inadvertently transferred some kind of poisonous particles to the patients in the maternity clinic. Two months after the death of his friend, he introduced a hand washing policy for doctors where they have to use chlorinated lime solution to cleanse their hands. And within one month of implementing this, the monthly mortality rate for the doctor's clinic fell from 12.2% to 2.2%. When he introduced even stricter controls, he, he was able to create a result where two months of March 1848 and August 1848, there were no mothers who died of childbed fever. Amazing statistics, right? So did hand-washing practices catch on? So I think I, I need to spend some time right now to address some of the common concerns, especially when it comes to the word storytelling. And I think it's very important to share with you that this is not a dramatic storytelling workshop. I know I, 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 can, tell, I can tell whenever I tell some of my clients, um, they, are, they are scientists, and they have this horrified gasp, this horrified look like, ah, what? You mean we're going to do dramatic storytelling? Like this is, in, this is a theater class. This is an acting class. Um, we do not want to introduce too much subjectivity into the scientific process. So I'm going to allay your fears right now because I am not going to be giving you a one-hour masterclass on vocal projection, tonality, facial expression, dramatics, and none of all that. We are not here for entertainment. I'm here to share with you how, by using the narrative of storytelling, we can make our presentations more compelling. It is all in the craft. Helen, do you have anything to add to this? No, I, I, and, I, and I, th I just think it's really great to hear um, the use of, of, of the words craft and science and narrative, because I do feel that, as you say, I mean, even when we spoke in the first instance about this webinar, it was very, I, I, I was really keen to ensure that people understood um, how this might help them. So very often, you know, how is this going to help me in my role? And I think by providing this reassurance up front, people will, whatever concerns they may have had, will will have been removed. And and I'm 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 super excited. I want to know because, you know, I think for all of us, when we're um, whether we're an MSL or for anyone, whether we're an aspiring MSL or whether we're a scientist or irrespective of what our role is at the end of the day Cohen what we're seeking to do is to have a human to human interaction and 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 I think that we've some we sometimes box ourselves off too much by saying well we're, we're scientific of course we can't use stories so no thank you thank you for the reassurance and and please carry on Yep, so I'm just going to give you a very quick um, explanation why I believe stories are very powerful. And as Helen very correctly said, it's about human to human connections. So 
University of Southern California professor and neuroscientist Antonio Damasio made a startling discovery. While working with patients with damage to the prefrontal cortex, he noticed that those with a damage to the prefrontal cortex, they struggled to make basic decisions like what should I wear? What should I eat? Do I want to go to the bathroom now or not? They cannot make even simple basic decisions. So what he really found is that decision-making is not a logical process. So many people would think, you know, especially people who are really logical and they are usually uh, analytical types, they might think, oh, you know, decision-making is a purely logical process. Even if we borrow from the very um, the parallel uh, field of economics, you know, we have um, classic economists saying that people are all in it to maximize their profits. But as we found out in modern day science and neuroscience that people do not always process making decisions logically. And that's where storytelling has a role to play. So this is a very uh, cute picture here. Not all of us are spot in uh, Star Trek. You know, when Captain Kirk uh, is leaning on someone to make decisions, Spock is fantastic at making really analytical decisions, but Spock does not process emotions. But I believe that in today's world, especially with the advent of social media, uh, we are all bombarded by information from multiple angles. And therefore, I believe that we are becoming increasingly emotional. So let me continue the story of Dr. Semmelweis. Most of you said yes, but unfortunately, even with 18 months of statistical data showing that hand-washing practice saved thousands of lives of mothers, Semmelweis failed. Because you see, in those days, in the mid-19th century, germs theory have not been discovered yet. It was only discovered later on, 10 years later, by chemist Louis Pasteur. But before that, nobody had any idea about, the, about germs. And so they were a rather snobbish medical community and they were not willing to change and admit their faults. They were saying, you know, washing hands, something so simple, something so, you know, um, mundane, can it really save the lives of mothers? And the doctors obviously wouldn't also admit that the mothers are dying in their own hands, literally. So what happened was that Semmelweis was fired. He was barred from finding similar jobs in Vienna, and he was forced to return home to Budapest. But he didn't give up. What does a scorned intellect do? What do you think he does? He wrote a book. He published a book. So he published a book called The Etiology, Concept, and Prophylaxis of Childbed Fever. In 1861, he published this book. It was published in German, and it was then translated to English. But in the medical profession at those times, everyone criticized his book, and they dismissed it as fake news. So even with statistical data, even with a book, a literature being published, he was making really little headway in terms of getting his ideas accepted. In fact, in 1865, he was committed to a mental asylum when he was beaten up by the asylum's guards. And within 14 days, one of his wounds became gangrenous and he succumbed to sepsis and he died 
at the age of 47. You see, it was only decades later when his work started gaining, posthumously gaining acceptance. And as a testament to his contribution to the public health, the Medical University of Budapest renamed itself the Samuel Weish University. And this story very poignantly shows us that we think we are logical, we think data can convince people. No, data is not by itself convincing. We need to be able to frame that data in a form of a narrative so that we are more persuasive, we are more convincing and compelling. Helen, do you have anything to add at this point? Absolutely. Well, well I, I just don't, I'm completely aligned to you. And I think that what you're saying is very much um, reflected in the evolution of the MSL role. When I was an MSL back in the day, Cohen, um, the expectation was that I would go out and present data. So I would present, prepare to present my data, which you said, you know, was 2000 slides in 45 minutes. And, and, and in terms of competencies, um, I, I received little support other than presentation training. So do you know your data? Do you know how to, to present your data, to connect to a projector, which was what we did in those days? And I think that today, a best-in-class MSL needs to be able to tell stories, needs to be able to create a narrative that allows him to engage with the physician um, so that they, they see what's in it for them. Because very often as MSLs, we engage with our agenda in mind. I need for Cohen to hear my data because if he hears my data, then he will be convinced about my data. But if you haven't bought into my story or feel any level of empathy from me, or understand where I'm coming from, no matter how convincing the data is, it may, you know, I may not buy in. Thank you, thank you. Let's talk about more, let's talk more about how we can make storytelling come alive in our presentations. I would like to share also even more information to you that in a, stu in a study of over 700 scientific journal articles, um, researchers Anne Hillier, Ryan Kelly, and Terry Klinger actually found that when research findings are presented in a narrative style, they are cited more frequently. And these are very important information for, for, for researchers and for academics. And one of my favorite books is a book written by a Nobel Prize winning uh, psychologist, Daniel Kahneman. And he shares that our human brain process information in two subsystems what's called systems one, which is fast, intuitive, emotional, auto automatic, and subconscious. So if you see a lion approaching you in the wild, you wouldn't stop and logically compute um, what, what is, what's the color of the, the lion's uh, skin, what is the lion going to do, what's the probability of the lion attacking me. You don't have time for that. You, know, you, you, you rely on your systems one thinking, and you have to make a very quick snap decision. And systems two is related to slow, analytical, logical, and effortful and conscious. 
And in today's modern world, modern society, I was just watching a Netflix, uh, a fantastic Netflix uh, documentary called The Social Dilemma. It talks a lot about how we are all being conditioned by social media, by Facebook, by Instagram. You know, uh, we are talking about the, the younger digital natives. You know, we make decisions very quickly. We make snap judgments by, by just scanning a photo or just by scrolling through our, you know, um, our news feeds, right? And uh, I, I even have a joke from my, from my theater teacher that, you know, we are born with our hands, right? But now the only muscle, the only finger or the only muscle that we are using is our thumbs to scroll through or to type messages. So it's only our thumbs that are getting a workout nowadays where we're just scrolling so quickly. So in today's world, we are becoming very, very systems want conditioned. And so therefore, I believe that storytelling is a very compelling way to, for, to, to create systems want thinking, right? It may be emotional, but let's, let's be honest. Even if you present the best data, sometimes physicians make decisions on the go, they make decisions with snap judgments. And so there's also a certain intuitiveness and a certain emotional quality to that. So let's do a simple experiment. I've been talking enough, right? So I would like every one of you to participate right now and uh, type in the chat box. I'm, good, I'm going to show you a, a three, a three sentences. And when I give you sen uh, the sentence, I'm going to give you 20 seconds to look at the sentence. And I'd like, like you to type in the chat box, what comes up for you? Are you ready? The first sentence, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. Just six words and we have so many different interpretations. Isn't that fascinating? Let's go for the second, question, uh, second sentence. Our bedroom, two voices, I knock. Third sentence, paramedics finish the text, dot, 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 love you. Just six sentences and so much interpretations. And that's the beauty of story, isn't it? And this is actually the sixth word story test that was given to the legendary writer Ernest Hemingway. A journalist was uh, challenging um, Sir Ernest Hemingway and say, hey, can you tell a story in six words? And he did. So if you look at this, all these three examples, they are just six word stories. But what they really do is to supply the context, the where, the what, and the when and your brains supplied the rest of the story. Isn't that amazing? Human beings are storytelling machines. Our brains are storytelling machines. If you don't give them the full story, they fill in the blanks themselves, which is why sometimes incomplete communication leads to speculation, gossip, and all that. So human brains are storytelling machines. And if you forget everything that I say today, you want to remember this. Because if we are storytelling machines, doesn't it then make sense that we supply those stories if we want to have our ideas being properly and effectively communicated across? 
we want to supply those stories. We do not just want to supply the context. But I will talk about that in the second lecture or the second webinar of this series, where how can we use stories to engage KOLs, HSPs, on a co-exploration, co-discovery process. And one of the challenges that I have when I work with MSLs is a lot of them tell me that it really depends on the region you're from, the personality of the people, the culture. Sometimes they have a hard time getting KOLs or HSPs to share their medical insights. And when we, when we come from a very, I, I'm here to tell you, a kind of a telling kind of a perspective, they are, not, they are just going to be passive receivers. But stories do a, a different thing. A story can open up their brain, open up their mind to the context and invite them on a journey to exploration, to co-exploration and co-discovery. And so you want to look out for the second uh, webinar on this series. Wow, if you are still not convinced about story, the Princeton neuroscientist Uri Hansen discovered that when people share stories, neural coupling occurs. So what neural coupling means is that, you know, the brain activities of the listener mirrors that of the storytellers. This is the seat of empathy. It's like you activate the mirror neurons in their brains and therefore people are in sync. And this is extremely important because your role as MSLs really often is to also build relationship. It's a, it's a kind of a secondary uh, role as well, not just to share insights, not just to share your latest research, but also to create this common ground, this rapport and this relationship. And so that's why when you share stories, when you share your insights in the form of stories, you create empathy as uh, Helen said earlier on, and you create relationships. Helen, do you have anything to add about this from your own experiences as an MSL? I have a question for you. Yes. So we spend quite a lot of time when we're talking, when we're, when we're training MSLs about impactful engagement, talking about building rapport. Yep. And one of the things that we often link our ability to build rapport around is, is getting you to be self-aware and to consider what your social style is. So um, if, if, if I'm, for example, a high red, you know, and I'm quite factual, um, am I less inclined to tell stories in, in that respect? Or are the people who are receiving the information less inclined to neurocouple with me, depending on their social style? What do you think about that, Cohen? That's a great question. Um... I, let me explain that by using examples of the MSLs I've worked with. Um, sometimes, you know, you, you set an appointment to meet a, to meet a KOL or HHSP, and uh, you, you walk in with a full expectation of having 30 minutes to present your ideas. But what's increasingly happening nowadays is that if you are having a conversation over Zoom, um, the other person has a, has a meeting when overrun. <laughs> And the next thing you know, you only have your 30 minutes cut short to 10 minutes. You have your 30 minutes cut short to five minutes. How then can you present your information? And 
the idea of storytelling is also not a matter of, you know, like I said, like I talk about, oh, what did I do last Sunday? I went to the beach. I did this. I did that. That's, that's more of a dramatic and entertaining storytelling. But we are, we are totally talking about storifying scientific presentations. It's about presenting our presentations in a narrative form. So even if you um, have only five minutes to present your ideas, and when you're talking to a person from the red side, the person is like, you know what? I just want the facts. I just want things fast, fast, fast. You're wasting my time, right? So you would want to be able to present your information in the fastest possible manner. And you can also do that through stories. And later on, I'm going to be sharing with you a quick three-frame story. Um, right. So, like, like I shared, you know, Ernest Hemingway can tell stories with six words. Um, if you can do it six words, you can do it with three frames. That's no reason why we shouldn't be telling stories. Fantastic. Thank you. That's a great question. And um, I hope I've answered those, that question as well. But of course, if the MSL has more of a yellow type of uh, personality and social style, well, uh, it's good news. Of course, you would be mm-hmm. able to co-explore and you know, share stories to and fro and uh, get, a, get on a very energetic and a very, very uh, social conversation. And I think, I think, you know, it is. So it was interesting, Sally, uh, one of our participants, clearly liked the question as well. I think as well, you know, there's one thing about engaging face to face. And then, of course, what we're having to do today is to adapt our approach to the virtual environment. And that creates different challenges for us because, you know, we're likely to be engaging virtually for some time to come. So and maybe that's something we could think about building in to your future webinars as well as thinking about the difference are the differences between our live and, and our virtual environment that we need to consider. So I'm just going to, I'm going to park that Cohen and remind you of it. Certainly, certainly. In fact, um, if, if you think about what I did just now, getting every one of you to get on a chat and just t- and participating, I realized mm-hmm. that on a virtual setting, even introverts are, are more likely to chat then they are likely to raise their hands in a live, live session and say, hey, I'd like to share an opinion or I'd like to ask a question. Um, and I find that really uh, shifting and changing the dynamics of, of, uh, of how we engage. Mm-hmm. And I feel that stories have even, even more powerful... Um, I, can I just, just go off tangent and explain this very important fact very quickly? Um, in the past, you know, the CEO sits in the corner office, um, you know, the boss sits in a chairman's seat in a, in a boardroom. Um, and, you know, uh, the, the speaker or the KOL is the one uh, or the pedestal on the stage, right? But now when people are engaging on, on Zoom or on MS Teams, they, they just appear as one square little box. <laughs> so I think that the power dynamics have been flattened. And that also lends itself to storytelling because Storytelling puts people on an equal footing. It is not, I am the expert, I am here to tell you, I'm here to tell you, but it's more like, hey, I'm, I'm here to share what happened. I'm here to, you, of course you don't say, I, let me share with you a story. You could say something like, let me share with you what happened, because what happened is a story. 
So if I can just add something to this, and, and, I, and I realize that, you know, we're, we're still on this slide. This is why when we are doing workshops regarding handling challenging questions or generating insights, we get people to think of the acronym TED. I don't know whether you know about TED Cohen, but TED basically stands for tell me, explain to me, describe to me. So rather than the why question, which can be quite challenging for some people, it's allowing people to then tell their version of the story. That's, that's a great one. Um, to add to that, um, when you are handling objections on a call, what is really useful is to use the TED and also to use what I call the feel, felt, found. Uh, I hear what you're feeling. I have felt the same way too. And this is what I have found. Mm -hmm. so that's a really useful way of st storytelling because I'm acknowledging, I'm, I'm feel, I'm, I'm acknowledging your feelings. I'm sharing a story of how I used to feel, how I felt in the past and what I found. And that becomes a segue into sharing your own insights. And according to um, data scientists, they found that, you know, if you tell a data story, you have an express lane on a highway into people's minds. So if you can see from this beautiful um, visual over here, if you're just um, presenting data after data after data, you are actually contributing to infobicity. Uh, that's a fantastic phrase I have learned recently. Um, can you repeat that? In, repeat that, please. Infobicity. It's like obesity, but mm. infobicity. So that's oh. information. information overload. Love it. Yeah. So if you are just coming with a stack of data and insights, what is, what is going to happen is that you're going to be um, caught on a traffic jam. But when you tell a story, you have an express lane into the KOL or HSP's mind. So like, like to ask you guys another question right now. What are the rings of Saturn made of? Can you please uh, type into the chat box right now? Like what are the rings of Saturn made of? And this is actually a very, very uh, fantastic opening question of a, of a semester that a professor was teaching about dust mites. And he started asking this question. Why did he ask this question? Because this question brought people into a different separate um, universe, literally, and created what's called surprise. And while we are talking about virtual meetings, when you get on a virtual call with a KOL, what happens is that they may be coming to a call after having sat through a two hour long meeting and they, they have hardly even stood up to get a coffee or they would have just come back to the computers after an afternoon walk around the wards. And what happens is that you need a way to capture their attention because chances are when they get on a Zoom call with you, they are not likely to be fully focused and present. So we are in an attention deficit environment right now. We need to capture people's attention. And so storytelling also has the element of surprise because if you can share a story, like for example, um, you can even share a story from the ending. You can, you, can, you can tell a story by starting with the ending. For example, CSI. 
why are people hooked on crime, crime uh, shows? Why are people hooked on CSI? Usually what happened is that the show, the episode starts on the crime scene. The crime has already taken place. We start with the conclusion. We turn things on their head. Very often we think about, you know, we are told to tell, uh, to write our essays in school with an opening and a body and a conclusion. But CSI starts with the conclusion. It turns things on the head. And that creates surprise. And surprise captures attention. And CSI is an elaborate form of storytelling. One of my favorite, personal favorite, um, not that I'm a morbid person, but because I'm an aviation nut. I mean, I love aeroplanes and I've been collecting aircraft models since I was young. And I, of course, love um, watching Air Crash Investigation or National Geographic. I mean, documentaries are educational. I mean, if you want to be educational, you can go to a museum, right? But what do museums do? Museums tell stories. Documentaries tell stories, you guessed it. So in aircraft investigation, they also end with, they also start with the end. This has happened. Now, what happened? Now, you, what, what have you done? If surprise captures attention, curiosity maintains it. So when you start with the end and you ask that question, how did we come to this conclusion? Or we, we rewind the clock and share with you what are the insights that we have found or what our investigators, what our researchers have found. Now, you have created what's called an open loop in their minds. And that open loops create curiosity. And you think about it. Why do people like to watch soap operas? And why are magician shows so captivating? It is not the magic trick. It is the setup. It is the showmanship that creates that open loop in the audience's minds and makes you go, I want to know. And if you want to be a compelling speaker, presenter, communicator, and you want your information to be sticky in your KOLs and HSP's minds, then you want to create curiosity. And stories create curiosity. I'm going to share with you what's called a three-frame story, right? And if the next time you are on, um, for example, you are on an on a Uber going heading to a meeting and you have been asked to make a last-minute presentation, I hope you can think about this three-frame story, right? And this three-frame story is very simple. Just answer three simple questions. But before I go there, can I invite you to just, in your own head, think of a recent presentation or a presentation you're about to give. You don't have to type in the chat box. You don't have to. You just think about it. You just think about it. And then these three questions be meaningful for you. Otherwise, you would be just, oh, okay, it's good to know. Yeah, I'm just going to have a drink. And that doesn't work, right? I mean, we want this to be meaningful for you. So if you have a a recent presentation, or you have an upcoming presentation, and if you have thought about it, please type in the chat box, yes. So now I'm going to share with you the first question with that presentation that you have in your mind. Remember I said, I, 
you start with the conclusion. The first question is, what happened? I'm not saying a story like, oh, I, I went to the supermarket, what happened? No, but it's more like you embark on a, on a project. You embarked on a project. You're going to give a presentation about it. You want to share what happened. You may also want to share where it happened, if, it, if it's necessary. Right? What happened? You don't start with why. I know Simon Sinek says start with why, but you do not always want to start with why. And in a moment, I'm going to share with you why you do not want to start with why. You start with what happened. Because what happened is the hook. Especially like um, Helen said earlier on, when you present to red social type people, they want things fast. And very often when you're speaking to your bosses, they are very busy people, aren't they? So they want things fast. So you want to start with what happened, not why. Now, after that, you want to share what ought to have happened, but didn't. And this is a better frame than saying, you know, I made a mistake. Of course, right? If you, if you made a mistake, you know, when you're, when you're talking to your peers, yeah, you may want to say that. But sometimes when you're talking to key stakeholders, you do not want to just say, hey, you know, I made a mistake because what's going to happen is that people are going to have a confirmation bias. If you tell people about the mistakes that you make and what are you going to focus on? The mistake. They're going to be focusing like a dog chasing a bone. And then your communication may go on a downhill trajectory. So what's more useful would be to share what ought to have happened or what were the expectations that you had that were not met. And then point number three is what have we found? So if you think about a simple example, like the aeroplane was supposed to take off and land in a particular place, but halfway it didn't, right? It, it crashed or something. So it's what happened. But what ought to have happened is things would have gone smoothly. That ought to have happened, but it didn't. And then when, when our investigators went to do research and we piece back what happened, this is what we found. And in this very quick three-frame story, you would have created a fantastic container to present your data. Because your data becomes the what have we found. So the, the first two questions really is to frame, to create a container. And what have we found is your precious data. So this is a, a quick three frame story framework to reframe your story. So think about what happened. So the first frame of your presentation is what happened. Frame number two, what ought to have happened. And frame number three is your data. I'm a firm believer that the role of an MSL or in the scientific field is to constantly make invitations. So whenever I give a presentation, I always frame a presentation as an invitation, not as a, a push. Of course, uh, we, are not, we are not in sales, right? Salespeople are, are measured by a very different matrix. But we are not here to sell, but sometimes we can become too eager to push. And that's why I call the curse of knowledge. 
the curse of knowledge is a kind of psychological um, concept where the expert has the knowledge that he doesn't understand what it feels like for others to not know that knowledge. And so therefore, when they present that knowledge, that data, that information, or even that offer that you just said, when you communicated your offer, it could be that they felt they were being pushed. And when people feel they are being pushed, their defenses are up. So what's so fascinating about this and useful for you is, is my recommendation for you is, I'm, I'm assuming this expert or client is a very important person to, to, to your business. Um, maybe give it some time. And the next time you get on a call with this, this person again, you could say something like this, listen, uh, dear Mr. Expert, <laughs> Um, the last time we made the offer and, you know, you didn't accept it, you know, um, what really we wanted to have happened is that we were sincere about making this offer to you. And we would really like to invite you to, to, to come back with us on this, on this uh, conversation. And what I found is that maybe I haven't listened enough to what you have to share. So can we start that again? Can you imagine if you were to say that to the, to the expert? it would just open and reopen that window of opportunity or reopen that relationship with that person. Because sometimes when the doors are closed, you do not want to keep the door locked. The doors are just closed. The window has just closed. But it doesn't mean that it's, not, it's forever closed. What goes up must come down, right? But so, so what is closed must be opened and what is open must be closed. So if you think about it from a long-term perspective, you can use this three-frame story framework to very, very quickly score a second chance with that same expert. I hope that was useful for you. If I could, can I just add something to what you've, you've said here, which yes. might allow MSLs to not only use this to support really impactful scientific engagement, is that if you were to approach your interaction using these three simple questions. So let's imagine that um, we, we concluded we have reached the end of a pivotal study yep. and, and the results have been um, presented, but in fact, the study failed on its secondary endpoint. So, um, so, so, so what we have found, you know, so, so, so ultimately, you know, we, we, we know that we have not met all of our important endpoints and, and that you can build this kind of story around that. What we as MSLs are then able to do is to add in a fourth, a fourth point here, which is, and can I ask you what this means for you? So this is our story. What does this mean for you? Because we may be making assumptions about what the failure of that secondary endpoint means, but that's our story. We've, we've, we've created that story in our minds. So the way in which we generate the insights are to think about the questions that we can ask once we have communicated our story so that I can understand what this means for you. That's an excellent follow-up on this uh, three-frame story uh, by throwing the ball back in the court 
uh, and asking what does this mean to you? That's great. So that's a great build on the three frame story framework. So I hope you have really come um, to accept that, you know, storytelling can be, doesn't have to be elaborate. It doesn't, we are not here to write a Hollywood script or a blockbuster. Um, we are here simply to really make use of basic narratives to create surprise, to capture attention and create curiosity. And I um, also want to share with you something. If you were to re-watch re this webinar again, do not just listen to the content of what I shared, but also listen to how I set up the webinar to create curiosity, like Helen says, and like all of you have said, that you are being engaged throughout, that you were constantly holding on to every single word and what I'm going to be saying next, right? So we have come to this one, which is really about storifying scientific presentations. But webinar two is something I'm very excited about as well. It's about enrolling stakeholders in the co-discovery process through storytelling. Because when people, when you tell story, people start to root for a certain ending, right? People start to, you know, like Greg's example of a soccer match or a sports game. It's like you, you will be rooting for one team over another, right? So um, when you tell a story, you create opposition, you create some form of uh, constructive tension. And when you enroll the stakeholder, they might also reveal their own agenda. They might reveal their own desired outcomes. And that becomes an easier way for you to enroll them in a co-discovery process. And I love the word co-discovery once again, because I believe in the power of teams. I mean, Today's world do not just lie with uh, an expert sitting in the ivory tower and making decisions or making policies. I think the best decisions are usually made in teams. And I think the role of MSLs is really a kind of uh, engagement, a kind of a team engagement a specialist by enrolling people into this process so that the outcome, the final research, the final insights, the final outcome can be even more beneficial. So that will, be, that will be what we're discussing in webinar two. And I know that um, I, I'm going to give Cohen the final word, but on behalf of 1MSL, I want to thank everyone for attending, but in particular, I want to thank you, Cohen, for such an engaging session. It really was incredible. And um, I'm super excited about what is to come. And I've learned a lot for, for myself and uh, know that I will use some of these techniques moving forward. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you, everyone. And uh, have a great day wherever you are. Bye-bye. Thank you. Goodbye, everyone.